This is Sundial on WLRN. I'm your host, Carlos Frias. My father was shot and killed two years, nine months, and 16 days ago. For a long time, the only thing I could bring myself to write about him was his eulogy. I used to write about my dad, Fernando, all the time. I wrote about being raised by a man in an apron who taught me to cook in the tiny kitchen behind the Carroll City jewelry store he owned with my mom. I wrote about watching his eyes fill the day he learned Fidel Castro had died. I wrote about him reciting his own poetry, his poesias, like the one about the day he was born. I never thought I'd have to write about my father being shot to death at 92. Nadej Green read what I wrote, and she included it in her new book titled More Than What Happened, The Aftermath of Gun Violence in Miami. It's an anthology of what guns have taken from us. It's a devastating and essential collection of stories, photos, poems from our neighbors in Miami who've lost loved ones, who've survived shootings, who live with daily gunfire outside their homes. Nadej is a historian of black culture, a lifelong Miami native, and a friend. On today's Sundown, we'll spend the hour with her, with this book. It'll get heavy, but it'll be worth it. We started our conversation by talking about her own personal history growing up in Miami. I live in the North Miami area now, but I grew up just a little bit south of there in the Little Haiti and El Portal area growing up Mm -hmm. is where I lived. Tell me about what was it like growing up in that area? Tell me about that area. We're talking about the early 90s. I was born in Little Haiti. Okay. Uh, Well, technically at Jackson Memorial Hospital, but you know. I got you. Then was brought over to Little Haiti (laughs) where my family lived. And then we moved to the village of El Portal, which is a small little village that most people had never heard of. So I would just reference it by saying it's just after Little Haiti or right before Miami Shores. But even though we lived in El Portal, Little Haiti essentially was home because that's where we did everything that, I mean, back then you didn't have the vastness of Haitian culture in different parts of Miami-Dade, it was really concentrated in Little Haiti. And so that's where you went for Haitian food, that's where you went for the Haitian supermarket, or maybe Hialeah every now and then if you wanted fresh meat. That was back when you can get fresh meat in mm-hmm. Hialeah, like right. fresh chickens and stuff. The um, butcher shops? <laughs> the butcher shops. You know, because Caribbean folks love butcher shops, right? They don't like frozen meat and stuff like that. No, they like to see it and point at it in the case and like, pick I it out. that one. That's right. No, the one behind it, that one. Yeah. That's the one. And so, but Little Haiti was really where, you know, the, the crux of life happened. It's where our family and friends lived. It's where I went to church, Notre Dame d'Aïti Catholic Church, which is considered the living room of Miami's Haitian community. <laughs> uh, you know, baptized there, first communion there. I dropped out before confirmation. Don't judge me. <laughs> but was that so, important to your parents? Was it important to be near the center of Haitian culture? Or is absolutely. That- it was. It was just comfort. It felt like home. Mm-hmm. And so it just made sense that we were in or near Little Haiti growing up. Neither of my parents really spoke English all that well when I was younger. Oh, I know about that. You know, the language barriers and having access to that. Both of my parents were uh, part of VAU, which was a grassroots Haitian immigrant rights organization. Wow. Um, And they still exist till this day. And Mm. so when the boats would arrive on shore, this was one of like the 
first responders and grassroots organizations that were addressing the harms, the disparate treatment of Haitian immigrants. They led protests in front of the old INS building. And just to date myself, that building was on 79th Street in Biscayne when I was growing up. And I remember that as a site of Haitian resistance in Miami, where we would go. I often went with my parents. My siblings would stay at home, but because I was the baby, I guess, you know, I was the annoying little sister. My parents would not leave me home with my siblings lest they kill me because Mm -hmm. I was the annoying little sister. But I remember the protests that would happen in front of that building. I used to write some of the protest signs at VAU. Like Um, what? What was on a sign? I remember this was after a coup d'etat in Haiti when Sid Glass took over. And one of the protest signs was, hey, hey, CIA, Sid Glass must go. And that that was one of the chants, you know, asking for, you know, this this new government who took over by force to to be kicked out. I had no point of reference as a kid who he was. And you're like nine Um, years old out there holding up a sign? Not even nine. I think I was probably like seven, eight years old. But I I remember vividly, I remember the, the protests around some of the human rights violations that were happening in Haiti in particular journalists and people who spoke out. One of the images I remember was a woman, and I believe Edwidge Doncicat wrote about her um, years later, but she had her, her tongue cut out, and there was mm. like this very visual image of her mm. with her mouth open. My God. And I remember that image from one of the protests and have in the conversations that happened around it, which was, you know, though this horror happened, if you have a mouth to speak, you must. And like those were the conversations I grew up listening to. That was, feels so much like like I understand where you fit in that in that picture right now, because I picture you growing up in a place that has a lot of Haitian culture, but a lot of American culture at the same time being very aware of politics, being aware of expression. I mean, we're, I think in America, people take for granted, like if you grow up here, expression, but those who are either immigrants or children of immigrants are constantly made aware of the rights that the rights and the ability that you have that you, you really don't get in other countries in some ways. You know, it's interesting because I, I did grow up on that hyphen of Haitian American. And so my upbringing was very Haitian. I used to joke that I didn't know I was an American until I went to school because <laughs> um, my house was very Haiti. Oh, right. Like same here. Very Creole, Cuban. You ate Haitian food. I remember begging my mom for Cinnamon Toast Crunch for breakfast. And she was like, no, you're going to get this smoked herring and boiled plantain. That's what we have for <laughs> breakfast. Right. But I also was definitely on the hyphen of American as a first generation American. And I was very lucky in that I grew up with a lot of my black American friends as well and spent lots of time in their homes. And so I also recognized that a lot of the the cross-cultural issues and how they're very real and how blackness as a diaspora, we face some of the many, many of the same things. And so I would listen to my friends' parents and their grandparents who would feed us, also talk about growing up in Miami as black folks right. and the stories of resistance here. Right. And and what the realities were growing up in Jim Crow, South Florida, the realities of, you know, Miami Beach and places like Miami Shores being sundown towns and that they lived that. Right. And that they saw that. And so I think, you know, whether we're talking about injustices in Haiti or injustices here in the U.S., that there are a lot of connections around some of the things we see and experience and like the global experience around blackness, the 
and I, I, you know, people often refer to Miami as the global South for black folks, right? Mm -hmm. Because from its very inception, Miami is a place founded by black Americans and black Bahamians, right? And so we've always had like this duality and multiplicity, really, not just duality, because you also had Jamaicans and you had a few Haitians here even in the early 1900s, um, late 1800s. And so... It, w- it was always interesting to me how our stories intersect and the places that they meet, even if the stories were not the same. You know, what it means to leave home because of dictatorship and what it means to leave home because the I-95 destroyed it because mm-hmm. of state violence, right? right? Um, but we are talking about state violence, whether you're talking about state violence in Haiti or the state violence of, you know, the Jim Crow era Miami and you know we can definitely reference state violence still today so so it was really to have that vantage point on that hyphen of Haitian American and to see the different ways that our folks fight the different ways our folks resist the the ways they leisure and experience joy and and exaltation and all of those things are just it's just beauty for me right yeah and I feel like because obviously today you're here to talk, to talk about this book, you know, more than what happened, the aftermath of gun violence in Miami. It's, it's, an, it's an aspect of what you've done for years now, which is really cover the city, the city that you experienced growing up. Like you really focused your attention on writing about places that you felt that were being quote unquote erased or ignored or not getting the right, the, the, the voice the people in those towns are not getting the voice that they deserved. And you spent really so far your career, everything that I've that I've followed on your reporting from here in WLRN to the Miami Herald, it's all been about highlighting those voices. And that, I think that's something that journalists sometimes do. We have the luxury of nerding out on the topic. And like you nerded out on the topic of really this almost like cultural anthropologist of understanding your neighborhood, the areas where you're raised? Yeah, I just think being from Miami mm-hmm. is special. And and you, you love Miami. That's I, the I thing. love Miami. You're one of the most 305 Dade people County, that I know. Dade County 305, right? <laughs> Born and raised in a county of Dade. Like, I and, and, and have no shame about that. Like, I love it. I love this place. I love this place I call home. I love my community. And because of that, you know, I I think about how the stories are told about black people Mm -hmm. in Miami. Well, loving a place also means seeing it for its faults, right? Seeing it for all the things that make it great, but also understanding the things that make it ridiculous or scary or those ways that we can be improved. In other words, an act of love is to relay it the way that it is. Absolutely. And, and I think part of that, like, you know, I, I recently gave a talk actually about community love mm-hmm. and, and all of the ways that I have been loved in Miami's black community. Like my librarian growing up was black, Miss Shanita, and she's still a librarian in the Miami-Dade Public Library System. You talk to me you about know, her. Yeah. I, I love Miss Shanita. During those porch sessions, Any I remember. Any chance I get to talk about Miss Shanita, the best librarian in Miami-Dade County. Shout out to Miss Shanita. Shout out to Miss Shanita. But like all of the elders who I got to sit at their feet and talk to them and, you know, and they guide you and they they call you in when they need to call you in. And, you know, I I honor that. And and I love the way our community shows up for itself. 
right? Mm. And in the way like where it really does take a village, I can look back at my village and smile because, you know, my mom was a housekeeper who worked at the Marriott in downtown. Before that, she was a farm worker in South Dade Mm -hmm. in a way that many immigrants are, are farm workers. And so my parents did not have a lot of time because they were surviving. What did your dad do? Um, my dad drove a jitney, the blue and white jitney oh, on Northeast Second Avenue. <laughs> I've ridden in that jitney, boy. Ooh, it's hot. It is but, an experience. It is. I mean, if you want to experience a little bit of Latin America without leaving South Florida. Yeah, it is the Caribbean. It is Latin America. It is the tap tap. It is the buses of Jamaica. It's the trucks. It's It's all of that. In fact, like on the jitney, Like there is a protocol, like if you're Haitian, right, that you know that when an elder comes onto the jitney, you have to stand up. Yes, ma'am. And even if you don't, they're going to tell you to get up. Normally women and always women, the older women will tell you to get up. And then she sits down and you sit on her lap. You don't know her from kingdom come. But as far as she's concerned, like she's your seat. That's her seat. Normally it's children, younger people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they'll like, you know, you're on the jitney going to school and they they don't even say anything. They just give you the hand motion, like get up (laughs) (laughs) and you're not going to fight them. You do. And then they sit down and then you sit on somebody's grandma lap for the next, you know, two blocks and she holds on to you like she's your seatbelt. And when your turn, your turn comes to get off the jitney, you know, there are no bells on the jitney. You literally have to just scream bus stop (laughs) and it stops. Hopefully if it's not speeding sometimes it'll stop like two blocks down but like that was just like an experience right like you can't go on Miami Day Transit and tell someone to get up and sit on my lap are you kidding me but that's a very like woman specific thing if there's an elder woman who comes onto the jitney um, and sometimes not even that elder but if she can hold you on her lap child she will take the child <laughs> child middle school and all like sit on my lap I'm sitting down I'm an adult but that's just that's just how it goes because that's how it is in Haiti and so yeah you know th- those different little pockets of like if you know you know but it's also a very cultural thing it's also a very neighborhood specific thing right but my dad drove a jitney which means he worked very long hours and what does that mean what's what's long hours like from sun up to like sundown like you know like so so we were like latchkey kids and but like we had like our neighbor who checked in on us we had like on the weekends I spent all my weekends at the library it was like free babysitting um, we yes. used to show up to the library before Miss Shanita showed up to the library waiting for her to open the door Wow! right and, and but that, people, was love. Yeah, like, people that was love yeah people don't uh, understand as much how important it was to have neighbors from your community maybe from your culture and background to really embrace you and feel comfortable my the the woman who I call my abuelita was actually my next door neighbor and Cuban was not blood but you know when when she died I was at her bedside yeah so like these these people are not to say neighbor you almost have to say it in Spanish you know you have yeah. to say you have yeah, to say like it in family. Creole yeah, because like it family. is like family it is like family like when you and I say cousin that's different yeah that's that's cousin. just diasporic like exactly. that's my cousin that was Nadej Green a Miami writer and historian who edited the book more than what happened the aftermath of gun violence in Miami. If you missed any part of our conversation today, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Coming up, we dive into the book and hear from the people living with the effects of gun violence in their own words. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We're back with local writer and historian Nadej Green. She recently edited a book with O Miami titled More Than What Happened, The Aftermath of Gun Violence in Miami. It's a collection of stories, photos, and poetry written by our Miami neighbors who have lived through gun violence. And in it, 
I shared the story of losing my father to a man with a gun. We continue our conversation with her, with this book, with a poem from a fourth grader who writes about hearing pistols in the night, with a mother who will never get over losing her child. Some of it is tough to listen to, but stick with us. So you took a part of this, of your community, and you started covering it in those ways, and you told it with love. But then, like I said, sometimes when you love something, you have to be brutally honest with what you're seeing. And the book, the collection, is an anthology of interviews of yours at WLRN over the years, but it's also first-person stories. It's poems. It's prose, photos, art. And it's kind of like this. If someone unscrewed the top of your head open and all of these images and words came floating out and above from people whose lives have been affected by gun violence. You specifically honed in on gun violence. You did this great series called In Their Own Words, and you didn't overstylize it. You just let people tell their stories about how gun violence had affected their lives. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that because I I think it starts with you. Like, why did you take an interest in that topic? Was there something personal that drove you in that direction? I think it was frustration. I was frustrated. And I remember when I pitched the story around gun violence, I think the first story I did around gun violence was a mass shooting that happened in Liberty City. But my frustration was that this mass shooting was not covered how we typically cover mass shootings in the media. Hmm. What did that mean? What, and, and there is no question for me that it was covered in that way because this was a black community. What I mean by that is, you know, typically as reporters, when there is a mass shooting, and it's, it's almost sad because it has to be an extraordinary shooting to get the type of coverage that really centers humanity. And the fact that even that, right, one person being shot is not extraordinary, two people being shot is not extraordinary. We need multiple people to be shot in order for it to garner the sort of coverage. And I remember being frustrated that this mass shooting happened. And while there was coverage around, like, the day of story is what we call it in the newsroom, right, that this shooting happened and here's what the police said, there was very little coverage around, like, how this impacted the community who are the people who are impacted? We didn't even know really their names. There were no singular profiles of each person who was shot and this is who they were, this is their face, and here are the victims, right? It's almost like you can't be a victim because of where you're from. And I think there is a judgment that is made, especially when it is adults that, well, we don't know who did what to cause this shooting. And so as a result of that, no one here is blameless. Everyone is to blame until we know the story. And and so I, I just don't think there is really, it's not looked in a way that centers the humanity of it's the folks. It's prove your innocence, basically. It is prove very your, much prove your innocent. Yeah. Or you hear terms like, you know, so-and-so was an innocent victim. And I'm like, well, what does it mean to be a not innocent victim? Right? And so there, there are choices that we make around that. And yeah. so that's why, why I brought it up in the newsroom. And typically, you know, I was told, like, radio doesn't cover gun violence. And I'm like, no, radio doesn't cover gun violence in the sense of just announcing a shooting happened. But what radio does do, what I'm interested in, was the interiority, right? Like radio takes you into spaces. Radio, public radio, you know, brings you to people. And that's what I wanted to do with the stories around gun violence. I wanted to bring the stories of people into this work and not just rely on 
police press releases and, you know, the day of story, like this horror happened. But who did it happen to? What does it mean to live with this? Who are the people in the community who are fighting back? And to do that, you did, you basically said it in their own words. And I, I want to play a little clip. This is from a conversation you had with Glenn Forshee in 2016. His daughter, Tequila Forshee, was 12 years old when bullets ripped through her grandmother's home in Miami Gardens, killing Tequila. So let's listen to that. I always thought I never want to lose my sons to, to no ignorance, no violence and nothing like that inside the streets. And I definitely don't want to lose my son to the system. Losing my daughter to a gunshot far from my mind. I would never have thought that in a million billion years. She died in August. Well, she, she, I don't even like to say that word. The word sounds so hard. She, she, um, okay, she passed away in August, and her birthday is in September. So I was going to take her to the salon, just take her out for a little daddy's little, daddy, daddy daughter little, little outing on her birthday, get her nails done, and, um, uh, and, and buy um, a chain for her birthday, a chain and a bracelet set with the ear, matching earrings. And I just, took the opportunity and um and burying her to say you know I'm gonna go ahead and still purchase the jewelry still you know what I'm saying get her nails done and see and and I think you hear a story like that and you did something in that you captured that for the radio and used and that's a way that you told those stories and that that story is one of the ones contained in the book yeah, some of the stories from the In Their Own Words series that I did when I was working here at WLR as a reporter in this book, and I remember this particular story because like, it was a continuation. I used to work at the Miami Herald, mm. and I actually covered Tequila's funeral when I worked at the Miami Herald. Oh. So I attended her funeral and covered that for the Herald at the time. And there's no way to attend a funeral of a child like that and not let it just shake your insides. I just don't know, I you know, how we can not be shaken by gun violence, period, right? Yeah. But there is a, a numbness that happens over time. There is this waiting. You know, one of the moms I interviewed who whose story is in this book as well, Serena Saul, she lost her son, Isaiah Solomon, who was a teenager, to gun violence at a wake. And she described to me what she said was a hierarchy around who people care for. And so the youngest kids get a lot of attention when they are killed by gun violence because it shakes the community. Absolutely. Right? Six years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. But we Serena pointed out something important that uh, several moms of teenage high school boys, black boys who are killed by gun violence in Miami have told me, which is once they get to high school, and they are killed by gun violence, that level of empathy and care is not there the same way. Mm. She said that she was constantly having to defend her, her son who is no longer with us because people kept asking what he did to contribute to his own death. Like those were real questions. She was like from the interactions with law enforcement to out in the community and you know he was killed at his at his cousin's wake right the responsibility all of a sudden right. shifts and so who do we care for who will we allow to be victims and, and and who are we saying it's okay 
if you get killed by gun violence because we have made a judgment or really we have determined that your life is not worthy right like those are things to grapple with and those are things that so many of the moms who I've talked who have survived their teenage boys who've been killed by gun violence in Miami-Dade have uplifted as a very real like another wound in this wound of loss that was another story that made it into this book and was part of your in their own word series and let's hear that clip over the past year in Miami-Dade County Grieving friends and families were shot while attending three different wakes. Four people died. Isaiah Solomon was one of the youngest victims. His mother, Serena Harrell, says she's dreading the one-year anniversary next month of Isaiah's death. My son was only down there to attend a wake. If I had any inclination that that would be his last day on this earth. I wouldn't have sent my baby down there. And it happened two months and four days before his 16th birthday. The hardest thing to do is live without him. How do I live? And you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just a walking corpse, like I'm just dead. And people think that I'm okay because I'm so vocal. I vocalize how I feel or, you know, I find the strength to push for him and keep his name going because let's be serious. We all know that when black boys get murdered, it is not a big deal. It's the norm. So I have to push a lot harder for him. But then it's like I'm empty. This was in 2017. And I think what people who have been affected by gun violence don't realize is that it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. My father was killed by gun violence in 2020, just at the start of the pandemic. He was uh, shot and killed in his own home by a neighbor. Um, that neighbor is awaiting trial. And what you realize is that it's not like a piece of glass that gets worn down in the ocean over time. Instead, it is a, a feeling of loss that grows and it grows around you and it floods you and it floods. It makes it hard to breathe. You make you have to lift your head a little higher because the water's coming higher. And, and I find that moments in my life pass where I always think this is another chance, another life moment where, you know, my father is not here to, to witness this. And you, you were kind enough to include my eulogy to my father in this book. Can I ask you why, what, what about it struck you and, and why you decided to put it in and where it is? I think, it's, I think it might be the last story in there, too. Mm -hmm. It's the very last story. I, I, again, I think when we talk about the stories of gun violence and really, like, rooting it in community, you know, I, like, you and I know each other, you know, professionally and, and as friends. But I remember you talking about your dad as the ice cream man. In Carroll City. My dad was the ice cream man of Carroll City. You know. Yeah. And, and there's I, these great pictures when we were going through his effects. These pictures that he always had up. My dad also later on in life owned a little jewelry store. And he had up the photos that these kids had come to the ice cream truck with their money and a Polaroid to take a picture with the, their ice cream man. And my dad always kept that with these hand-drawn pictures that they'd made on 
pieces of cardboard that they'd cut out. And I don't know if you remember, but I met your dad at the Herald. I think he was doing like a video for yes. like reactions, <laughs> like Abuelo's react to Ultra or something. Yes, that right? was it exactly. My, okay. guy, my dad was the one. So we had videos playing of all these crazy videos at Ultra, and we had these old folks reacting, it was, you know, seniors reacting to it. And my dad, I think, was the only one who was like, that looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I think also painting the reality of gun violence, because, I, you know, I, I did an interview not too long ago about this book where someone was like, well, that's something that happens or pretty much said something to the fact that that's something that happens in certain neighborhoods. And that's just not true. It's just not true. Exactly. I've been reading through the book, and it's one of those things that there is a bit of trauma. There is of reliving as I read it. And in that way, the book forces you to pay attention. The book is, in its own way, it's its own weapon. It's a weapon against looking away and ignoring. And when you read one story in it, it it's hard to look away and ignore it in your daily life. And I think it was important for me that there is something that, you know, when we think about the stories that are told about Miami, who gets to tell the stories about Miami, it's normally not the people you find in this book. We have students from Miami Norland High School who are published authors in this book. We have local photographers who are from Overtown, who are from Liberty City, who are from, you know, North Dade, who submitted photo essays in this book. Aaron Jackson, who's from Liberty City, you know, his intro to his photo essay, you know, talks about his love for his community, right? The layers, right? You don't stop loving your community because gun violence exists in it, right? And and even talking about how his grandma had a revolver, right? Like right. a lot of our elders have guns yes. too. My dad had a gun right? in his house. And, and so really, I think what happens when you allow a community to tell the stories about itself, Versus, you know, there's a version of this, right, that could have been a very academic book where you go into the communities, you study the community, and then you speak on behalf of the community, right? And it's and it's sanitized in a different kind of way, and the audience is different. Right. Not that it's not important work, right? The social sciences are important. Like, all of the work that happens in academia is also important work. But I was really interested in the public scholarship around gun violence. Like, it's written by Miamians and... We can't say that this doesn't happen here, right? We have a record of gun violence in Miami in a way that has never existed before. There was no book that focused on the impact of violence. And and, and when, when we talk about the impact, certainly there are the emotional wounds. And like when you mentioned about your father, you know, so many people have said some version of what you just said, which is time does not heal this wound. This isn't something you get over. Or as one mom had told me, like, you don't get over losing your child. Yeah. You don't move past that. That's not something you can move past. What this book does, it bears witness. Yes. To it this reality. It bears witness. Right? Because sometimes we want to turn away. And turning away, you're like, well, nothing to see here. But this book makes you see. Even when we talk about domestic violence, there is an essay as told too by Lee Betsy, who is in this book. And Lee Betsy writes about posting a photo on social media of wearing a beautiful red dress going to a party and how that ended with her ex showing up at her home and hitting her over the head with a gun and shooting up her house with their children in it. And when we talk about, you know, gun violence, we're talking about domestic violence. If you are a woman and you are impacted by gun violence, 
it is likely that it is a domestic violence situation and it is an intimate partner who is the one holding that gun. And so we talk about, you know, just hearing the story around safety. And what what, what strikes me in, in the essay that she, she submitted is talking about being re-victimized by the system. Right. Every time you have to retell your story, because now you're going through family court, you're dealing with criminal court, DCF has to get involved because there are children involved. And now because you are a victim of domestic violence, you fear about losing your children through no act of your own, but because you were victimized. And just all of the ways the system is not really designed to handle, you know, these cases with care yeah, and the tenderness that you would need after experiencing such a traumatic event. Right. And so that's one of the stories that is captured and it's in this book. But you also have and I was really when I tell you, I like some of my favorite writing in the book came from young people, school age kids. Yep, same. And there are a group of students from Miami Norland High School. Precious Simonette is their teacher who also writes the intro. I, they have a whole section in the book because their writing was just that powerful. I reached out to their teacher and I was like, you have to write the intro to your students' writing in this book. And so there's a whole section with about a dozen Miami Norland students who write. And they're the only ones who write about gun violence within the context of police violence. I mean, you're the mother of two kids. Will you tell me a little bit about how you talk to your sons about gun violence? I don't know that I really bring up gun violence to the children in respect to, like, neighborhood. I do talk to them around school because that's where the most fear is, not, you know, you go somewhere in your neighborhood. But, like, my 8-year-old, well, my now 9-year-old, has been doing code red drills since he got into school right and coming home and it's like oh my friend held my hand this time and at least that was a little bit kinder or he told me about like one of his classmates who take taekwondo and how she pledged that she would protect the class if anyone comes in to kill them because she's taking martial arts like these are conversations that our children are having and should not have to have and so or even explaining After Parkland, and I covered Parkland as a reporter, I didn't tell my children that I was covering it because of the angst I know that that would give them because they were already experiencing the angst at school. You know, my son came home after Parkland and was like, all of the teachers at school were crying today because a bad person went into another school and killed some of the students, right? How do you respond to that? And so you have to explain to them, like, you know, like that these horrors happen. That was Nadej Green talking with me about her book, More Than What Happened, The Aftermath of Gun Violence in Miami. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Switching gears, Nadej tells us about the other ways she's documenting Miami life by preserving Miami-Dade's black history. More when Sundial continues. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We continue our conversation with local writer and historian Nadej Green. She's the creator of Black Miami Dade, a storytelling platform you can find online and on Instagram. It's a beautiful collection of photos and moments in history, like the black-owned charm schools of the 1950s in Liberty City, 
Diana Ross making her solo debut at the Eden Rock. Stories of joy. I'm really interested in narrative disruption. I'm really interested in democratizing who gets to tell the stories about this space and correcting the historical record. In this case, I think what this book does is, you know, far into the future, you may come across the news articles about gun violence in Miami, but you're not going to find these intimate stories necessarily about how gun violence impacted folks in Miami. This book is a record of that. And so I'm really interested in archives and records and and how do we like cement these stories in a way that can be found in the future. When I started the Black Miami Dade Project, it was really because not that there wasn't information about Miami's black history, but that just that it was not visible right. or easy to find. Well, step back a minute, because if I'm not mistaken, like you're a big thrift thrift store nerd. I am. Like I'm a you, thrifter. You thrift many things. Among the things that you've thrifted, you love finding little pieces of of black Miami culture with like old photographs yeah. and handbills and all kinds of references. So I imagine that in your home, there was a black archive starting to build. For sure. Well, well first I want to acknowledge that there is a black archive <laughs> right. in Miami right. founded by Dr. Dorothy Jenkinfields and whose work I am absolutely inspired by and, and, and build on because in fact, I am a graduate in, in some ways of, of Dr. Fields when she was in the public schools. When I was growing up in middle school, there was um, an after-school program through the Black Archives um, Research Foundation here, which is headquartered at the Lyric Theater in Overtown now. But when I was in middle school, there was like an after-school program where it was like you were a Black Archives docent almost. And so, What you, did that mean? So I learned about the history of Miami through Dr. Fields and, you know, they would take us to Overtown and we would like meet elders. We helped with like a oral history program with cassette tapes back then. We also gave tours of the Chapman House, which is um, preserved on the Booker T. Washington High School campus. And Booker T. Washington High School itself is an iconic place of Miami Black history, Black education history, because before Booker T. Washington High School was built in the 1930s here in Miami, there was no high school in Miami for Black children. Oh, wow. And so pre-1930s Miami, once you were done with the eighth grade, many parents had to send off their children to boarding schools in other parts of the South. And certainly, even if they couldn't afford it, they, they invested in their children's education because they had to. So, That's amazing. And so they did what they had to to make sure their children got that education. But just to speak to what the school system was or, or was not, right? But I feel like I got a master class in Miami Black History in middle school, which is not the norm, but that's because Dr. Fields would come out to Horace Mann Middle School. Is that where you went to middle school? Yes, Horace Mann Middle, go Trojans. (laughs) Where'd you Um, go to high school? Are you a graduate of the West? I am a graduate of Miami Northwestern High School, the best high school in Miami-Dade County. Go Go Bulls. Bulls. Yeah, we're holding up up, uh, two fingers. Listen, always. I mean, if you know Miami Northwestern graduates, we are insufferable because (laughs) we love our school. And yeah, you know, so having that exposure with Dr. Fields at, at, at a young age, also having a great librarian at a young age, really like for me, gave me a love of history and and curiosity around our local history in in particular. And, you know, the Black Archives has, and, and Dr. Fields has done amazing work around, like, preserving that history, 
both architecturally, mm-hmm. um, but also physical items and images and, and, and things of that nature. I think the the work that I that I do is it's really a visual project making you see it. And so some of that work already exists in the world, and I'm just, like, re-uplifting it from the Miami Herald archives, from old Miami Times newspapers. You're amplifying um, the message. Amplifying. You know, on the website, blackmiamiday.com, I've listed all of the books about Miami black history that you can check out at the local library. Because, again, it's not that the information doesn't exist. It's often that people don't know where to find it. Right. Like, I know I went through that list a couple months ago, and there's a there's a book about the experience of someone writing who came from Cuba under Peter Pan that 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 program where where parents sent their children off without them to get out of to get out out of the, the communist revolution and what the experience was for a black Cuban child an Afro-Cuban child and what his experience was like and that's not a book that you would that you might know is out there but Understanding that when you read something like that, it's very different than Waiting for Snow in Havana. You know, something that's both those books exist together, but they don't always, they're not necessarily going to get the right. same and, kind and of And the book you're time. talking about is Black Pedro Pan because we know during the Pedro Pan flights, most of the children who came were not black. Right. Right. And so, what is the experience of a black child from Cuba who comes to the U.S., to Miami in particular? Jim Crow, Miami in yes. particular, mm-hmm. right? And and so, and, and that split, I mean, one of the posts on Black Miami Date is about the Archdiocese of Miami's first black priest, who was Cuban. Right. Sergio Carrillo, who was a, a, Bay, of, a Bay of Pigs veteran and was also a, a, a priest in Miami. Yeah, he was the first black priest in the Archdiocese of Miami, a black Cuban man. And he actually wrote about how his experience was was very different from his white Cuban counterparts. And in fact, he was saying somewhere like in the South Dade-ish region with white Cubans, but he was told at night, you really can't go out because then they're going to tell you you're supposed to be in color town. You're not supposed to be here because this is a segregated all-white area. And, and so really, when we think about what blackness in Miami means, I'm very interested in the diasporic blackness of Miami, which has always been been that, right? Like if we're talking about black Bahamians in Miami, black Americans, uh, black Cubans, black Haitians, black Hondurans, right? And uplifting those stories through visuals, through photographs um, from the archives, from various archives, right? One of the interesting things around this work is making visible, like quite literally seeing people. Right. Yeah. That, when we make visible, we're talking literally making visible. Literally, like, you know, if you log into the Instagram account, you see the photos of people. You see photos of the buildings I'm referencing on Black Miami history. And it has been such a joy hearing feedback from the community because one of the things I constantly hear from people is like, I'm from Miami and I never knew this history. Like, I was born and raised here, and no one taught us this in schools. I did a talk not too long ago. Um, I was on a panel at Books and Books in Coral Gables. And I asked everyone, I'm like, raise your hand if you can tell me, like, the basic details. You have some sort of knowledge about the Montgomery bus boycott. Every single hand went up. I said, leave your hand up if you can tell me about desegregating Miami Day Transit. Every hand went down. Of course. So I, I think it's important to situate Miami where we are, which is the Deep South, because this is, in fact, the Deep South. This is a site of white terrorism. 
This is a site of, you know, clan violence against black folks. This is a site of black resistance. Virginia Key Beach, the black beach in Miami, the segregated black beach that was created for black folks is a site of black resistance because it was because of direct action and protests that black folks were able to access public space. And so we want to talk about accessing public spaces in the U.S. Miami is a a case study around black folks fighting for equal access to public space. And we can point to a number of spaces today. I had the absolute honor of meeting some students from Booker T. Washington High School who came to a talk that I did at the Miami-Dade Public Library on black women being pioneers of healthcare in Miami, whether we're talking about the early midwives mm-hmm. of black Miami or, or to folks like uh, Jesse Trice. There's a whole community-centered Jesse Trice health system named after a pioneering black nurse in Miami. But it's very possible that you have gone to Jesse Trice and don't know who Jesse Trice is, right? That's an issue. Like, what does it mean to have these buildings named after black folks, but we have no education? There's no context. Uh, or no context for who they were. Right. I'm like, so I, I think it's important for us to know it's possible that you have gone to the Joseph A. Caleb Center and paid your bills and went to the little mini courthouse in there and did all kinds of stuff at the Joseph Caleb Center and not know who this very important union organizer was in Miami history, you know, a very important person in yeah. black Miami philanthropy, right? And and, and I, the list goes on and on. Like, you, I can list have all these buildings. You have a discussion coming up soon regarding your, your fellowship in New York, NYU, where you're discussing black queer elder. And I remember you posting about, like, like black queer older folks and their experience, you know, to, to like historically. And I just thought that that was yet another way where you're kind of making visible another another yes. aspect. As a black queer woman from Miami, one of the things that is very apparent when you look at black Miami historical records and what exists, you don't hear or see black LGBTQ plus folks represented in an explicit way there or at all. How did that affect you growing up? Because, I mean, that that is also an awakening and an understanding of who you are and what the parts of you are. I don't think it even occurred to me growing up that the record was silent on this because mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus history, for the most part, was pretty silent, you know, in, in educational spaces then and still now in a lot of ways. But certainly as an adult, I, you know, when I look at LGBTQ plus history that has been recorded and written about Miami, you don't see black people. Or, I mean, if you squint really hard, you might see a black person in like the historical photos, or, you know, there might be a black drag queen performing to a predominantly white audience. But what you don't get is the interiority and, again, the stories of what it means to be a black queer person from Miami. And so I've been collecting oral histories around black LGBTQ plus history in Miami, talking to folks who are part of the community and who are from Miami, who are 45 and older. And one of my, one of the interviews. I love that. I love it. I love that, that, that very specific, that, that pie of people, that slice of pie of people. Because this is a place that has also a lot of transplants. And I did, I, I wanted it to be rooted in Miami. So having either been in Miami for a long time or from Miami. Um, but one of my interviews is with like a black lesbian woman from Liberty City. I call her the original city girl, um, <laughs> Dr. Naomi Cobb. And, you know, she talks about growing up in segregated Liberty City yeah. and, and seeing, you know, 
her neighbor whose mom had a partner who was a mask presenting woman mm. and whose mom didn't live with them but would come down from, you know, the the state that she was in for the holidays and, and seeing that and even next door seeing like the the siblings next door, the sisters who would throw parties and it was the first time she saw a girl's kiss at at a party and, and meeting black lesbians in her neighborhood and and you know, the black gay tailor who would sew everyone's clothes, including the pastor's suits, right, in segregated Miami, uh, but who wore earrings and lipstick sometimes. And and so, like, that visibility is not something we see in the history of Miami of black LGBTQ plus folks. Um, and certainly the stories of where you were, what you saw, like, what were the hangout places? What were the safe spaces for black queer folks? And, you know, one of the photographers who's actually in the gun violence book, Aaron Jackson, said something uh, really powerful, uh, which was, you know, we need an army of storytellers, right? There can't just be one, right? You need many people to tell stories. Absolutely. And many people are going to tell stories in different ways, in right? In different voices. And they're going to bring their experience into the storytelling. And so, you know, for me, I think this is a love offering back to a community that I love and that I have felt loved by, right? And so if we're going to tell the story of, of this space, I think it has to be told from the people who are in this space and uplifting, you know, the authors, the Black historians of Miami and the people who have done this work in the past into the contemporary space. That was Nadej Green, Miami writer and historian. You can find the stories we talked about today in the book she edited, more Than What Happened, The Aftermath of Gun Violence in Miami. The book is available on shelves or online at Books and Books and at omiami.org. Thanks to Nadej for making it a little easier to talk about a difficult subject. And that's Sundial for Thursday, December 15th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateos Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundal's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on Sundial, Jonathan Escaferi, one of the brightest new voices out of Miami, whose very first book, If I Survive You, was nominated for a National Book Award. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.